uh, this, this platform was locally in-house designed and built, and I've been heckling it for the last two weeks, and I didn't realize I was going to be put on it. So I feel safer back here, honestly. <laughs> uh, I'm the only engineer on staff, and I was not consulted in building this. So a little concerned. Uh, let me just encourage you guys tonight and Tuesday night with uh, the unique opportunity that we have. As, as many of you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but Christmas remains uh, an event that uniquely captures the attention of people. And it does so in friends in our lives and relatives uh, that we relate to. They turn their attention and they celebrate in this season. And they welcome the opportunity to celebrate things like Christmas musicals, etc. So greatly encourage you to, to give your friends and neighbors and co-workers an opportunity to, to hear the gospel in music uh, as we share tonight and on Tuesday nights. So uh, they, they can't respond to an invitation that they don't get. And so have faith to engage their lives and just trust that the Lord is in charge of their response. You know, you're not. You don't have to worry about that. Just inviting them and opening your heart and your life to them is, is plenty enough, and God will take care of the rest. Um, this morning, we've been in a little bit of a, a, a series here on the last few weeks discussing how things that God puts inside of us find their way out of us in ways that begin to characterize every Christian. Every Christian should have this expression of life in them that looks a certain way. It has a certain aroma to it. And I've used the illustration of a DNA molecule and what it produces in each of our lives. It produces characteristics. And, and so we've looked at the, the characteristic of Thanksgiving in the last few weeks, and, and we are looking here in December at the characteristic of humility. And I wish there's something about humility that's a unique thing to focus on. And I think it's because the origins of, of sin and the fallen world that we live in, they, they find their, de their debut in the opposite of humility. They find their debut in pride. And so there's something about pride that spreads its way into every facet of our lives in unique ways. And boy, if I could take what we're talking about here, I, I don't ever like to, to stand up in the pulpit and act like this one message this morning is more important than any other messages. It's just the message God's given us for today. But there's something about humility and pride that is so functional and so real in our lives that I, I, we could put this in a syringe and inject it in everybody on the way out today. Uh, this would serve us immeasurably in our lives. So let me just say it this way. I was just praying over the message and I'd say it this way, few freedoms can match freedom from pride. What it is that you'd like to be free of in your life. Few freedoms can match freedom from pride. And few things will serve you and the people in your life like humility. Few things will serve you and the people in your life, the relationships that you have like humility does. Because pride has this self-serving ambition in it. It's, it's like a cancer cell. It has a self 
serving ambition. It exists in your life for its own reasons. And the, the moment you become a being that's about yourself, that attitude breeds certain other attitudes in your life. Like when it's about you, you, you will not be able to avoid things like unhealthy comparisons, prideful and selfish ambitions that are in your life. And once you start to compare how you're doing with how others are doing in certain categories, you have installed opportunities for envy and jealousy in your life. And these, these things are miserable experiences in us. They will rob us of joy like few other things can. And the misery, I, I want to, you know, Lord, spare us of the misery that this brings into our day-to-day existence and into our relationships with each other. As we just fight for something for us that we're constantly managing, trying to get something for us that we just can't seem to ever satisfy. And the moment that begins to happen, there's an ambition to acquire or to become something that when you begin to fail in your life, and by the way, you will fail at a lot of stuff in your life, but if the key to whatever it is that pride is telling you, if that's the key in your life, then, then you can't manage failure. You can't stand to see failure because failure keeps you from that thing. And, and you might be a person who the flavors of your life are filled with envy and jealousy and comparison and an inability to explore your failures. How comfortable are you exploring your own failures? Taking the leash off and wandering into what you don't do well. You're not good at that. People look at you and they don't applaud you. They kind of shrink back from you in some way. You, you do realize people don't applaud you in every category, right? You aware of that? That's mostly what's occurring when they're when you're not there and it's behind your back. Uh, they applaud you in, in front of you, but behind your back, they highlight what you don't do well. And so you do realize there's some stuff in you that really smells bad. And there's pride in you that says, the last, I, I want everybody to be enamored with me. I want them to be amazed by me. And so when you fail, it's an awkward thing to have to manage. And some of us just don't have the freedom to fail. Now, let me just theologically tell you from a pastor's standpoint what a challenge it is that if you've walked into this building this morning and all week long you have been very busy managing success, trying to create this sense of I'm good at stuff and you want to stay away from feeling like you're a failure. That's a very busy agenda. You're probably worn out by the time you've gotten here. You're emotionally worn out by the time you got here this morning. And, and here, here's a frustrating thing. I'm going to just tell you a frustrating thing as a pastor. There's a lot in this Bible that highlights stuff that you don't have to worry about doing at all. There's a lot in the Bible about that. Matter of fact, the most important things in the Bible are that. They are things that God has done on your behalf that you are just standing in awe of and receiving by grace. But how many of you know that when you read that same Bible, it does call you to do some things? Right now, I've gotten responses, you know, I've been preaching for a long time, so you get responses from people that sometimes you sit through a message and you feel like you walk out of here with just one more thing to do. You know, I just feel like 
I just feel so, so burdened by that. I feel so condemned by that. You know, I got one more thing to do. Okay, can I just use this message to peel back something that you may not be aware of? It, that, that feeling, that weightiness, that ultimate responsibility, that may not be because here's another message about what Christians are supposed to do. You know, you may be walking in here very, very worn out because pride is active in your life. And you are so eager to measure up, to achieve, to succeed, to stay away from failures. And you're very aware that you're failure and you don't like it. And so you're, you're weighted down by that. And then you walk in here and there's one more thing for you to do. You don't want one more thing to do. But listen, it's not because theologically you've just been overloaded with too many Christian things to do. It's because pride may be active in your life in such a way that you're chronically just watching yourself and you're, you're on a performance basis. Pride puts you on a performance basis. The problem with it is performing for what and for whom? Wh whose standard are you trying to satisfy? Well, I'm trying to satisfy the comparison standard I've created by looking at that person and their successes and what they do, and I'm trying to measure up to them and whatever categories become important to you. Listen, that's all pride. Pride is creating that. So what, what a joy to this morning have something in our lives that we could turn the valve off on that. And you could stop having to manage that kind of stuff in your thinking, in your life every day. What a joyful freedom from misery awaits us as we get liberated from pride and humility grows in our lives. Now, let me just say this as a warning before we jump into the pool here. Um, when I speak of humility, you know, humility, if you've been in, in Christianity for very long, matter of fact, it's got its own little measure of attractiveness to it, even outside of Christianity. There's something about humility that sounds like, yeah, I like the way that sounds. I like that thought. Can I just warn you, though, that there's a big difference between loving the topic of humility and enjoying being humbled. One of them actually feels a certain way. The other one you kind of don't even touch. It's like, I like that topic of humility. Yeah, that's good. We should learn about humility. Humility is important in the Christian life. It's important about Jesus. But what about when you become humbled? See, because when you become humbled, you will become small. How many of you know we don't like becoming small? I don't like having an even lower opinion of me. <laughs> that's just not real fun. So you could be here today saying, I love that topic of humility, but you could hate being humble with everything in you. As a matter of fact, it's strange that some people are drawn to the applause of humility. Let that sink in for a second. All right? If I teach for a month on humility and make a big deal out of it and say how great it is and how God-glorifying it is in every Christian, and wow, you know, humility, that's a, wow, that's a, humility's a big thing, uh huh? I, I'm kind of in, I like that. Well, be careful. What is it that you'd like to have people say about you? Wow, that, that he's such a humble guy. Congratulations. What is that? Well, it's just pride dressed in a new suit. <laughs> so be careful that, you know, when you really, really begin to experience being humbled, um, God will notice. Somebody else might not. 
And then you'll have to figure out, do I really, really want to be a humble person if nobody else is going to stand around me and notice my humbleness? Um, well, yeah, if you want it for the right reasons. But what's, what's this got to do with our Christmas setting and our Christmas story? Well, everything. Because Christmas gives us the doctrine of the incarnation, right? The ultimate front row seats to the act of humility that is unmatched and unparalleled ever. The God of glory is found wrapped in a baby outfit. He is a newborn child, part of his creation, and we'll, we'll look at that next week. But, but this week, I want to draw our attention to the setting of the Christmas story and the title in this message, Humble Beginnings. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but I just want to look at two things in these humble beginnings today. The Christmas story uh, is a story about darkness and a story about inability. I know it's a story about a lot of stuff, right? There's shepherds, and uh, there's a manger scene, and there's stars, and there's prophecy fulfilled. It is a story about darkness, and it's a story about inability. And so I want to draw our attention to that. Now, this is humble beginnings. Let me just tag this just for a second. won't develop this thought, but... Uh, be careful that you don't think about Jesus as though Jesus begins in the manger. He's a baby. He's born. Uh, because if you do that, you will distort who he is in such a way that actually next week's message would make no sense to you. The Christmas story is a bit of a beginning, if you will. But it is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's just a slice of what he has done in all of eternity when he showed up in the form of a man and took that assignment for a period of time. But it's not a beginning for him, right? We remember this verse, it's in your outline there, Colossians chapter 1. It says, for by him, who's the him here? The baby in the manger, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is where any religion, and I'll particularly pick on Islam in this category because you're, you're getting educated about Islam today like never before. Any religion that appoints Jesus the lofty title of prophet, good man, good teacher, and that's all they have to say about him is not talking about the same Jesus that you believe in. Because any man born in a manger could be described that way. Any man born as a human being could become a prophet who did some amazing teaching. But all things were created by this one. Everything that ever came into existence came into existence by him and for him. So he is before all of them, and they all answer to him. That's like no human being now, isn't it? This is where he is more than just a man. But this is a story about darkness, right? And darkness is all over the setting of this story. I wrote this in your outline. The Christmas story and the incarnation reveal our desperate and weak and needy and incapable and vulnerable and in over our head condition. This is just more DNA reasons for humility. We are needy 
And some things are impossible for us to remedy. And so this Christmas story begins that into a great darkness came our light. Right? That's the setting of Christmas. Christmas is a story set in great darkness, right? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we either have slides for this or you're going to have to follow along with me in your Bible. But Luke chapter 1, Luke actually gives us the most recording of the setting of the Christmas story. I think there's 86 verses before we get to the birth of Christ, uh, unrivaled by any of the other Gospels. I think Matthew comes the closest with 25 verses. So the setting of the Christmas story in Luke sounds like this. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. I'm going to come back to that in the end. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what is this story about? This Christmas story is about darkness being invaded by light. And Matthew picks up the ministry of Jesus in chapter 4, the gospel of Matthew, and says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So here, here is our beginning to the Christmas story. It's a Christmas story that is set in deep darkness. Now, what this has to do with personal humility for each one of us is that every one of our stories, every one of our humble beginnings is set in deep darkness. That's the description of our lives as well. It's not just the time in which Jesus came into the world. It is the description of this world and of our lives, a place of deep darkness. That word darkness, the original language, it means an enveloping sphere that has significance for our existence. It hampers movement or foresight, causing anxiety or danger, right? How many of you guys in your life were never afraid of the dark? Never? One? Congratulations. I'm not sure you're old enough to say you aren't afraid of the dark yet. You might still be as you get older. <laughs> Right? All of us, for some strange reason, right, all of a sudden, you're just afraid of the dark. Right? What was it about darkness that frightened us? I mean, what is it? I mean, it's just a, just a different setting, right? It was bright over here a little moment ago, and then it got dark. And no one, I don't ever remember, you know, a kindergarten class where, you know, we were being instructed. Okay, now, kids, we're going to turn the lights out, and the appropriate response is to be terrified, you know? You like go to bed at night, you're by yourself, you're laying in bed. You know, my parents never came in with a bedside story or instructions on, okay, Keith, at this point, you should be really, really afraid because we're going to turn the lights out and you're going to ask us to keep them on and you should be scared. And matter of fact, you should come in our room and wake us up somewhere through the night. <laughs> no one ever instructed me on doing that. I just knew there was something about the dark that was scary. Right? Well, that's true. But, but here's the challenge in this story. 
because Jesus is coming into a setting, you know, where, you know, the, uh, the earth spins and so the, the sun rises and sets on this location. So apparently whatever this darkness is, it, it doesn't get fixed by the sun. And it's not as though they didn't have lamps and lanterns that they couldn't light the darkness up in some way. So whatever darkness Jesus is about to invade, it, it's not solar related. It's not something that you can fix with a lamp or a light bulb. It's, it's a different element of darkness that exists in us and it hampers us it's problematic it frightens us it creates anxiety on the inside of us and the physical part that we recognize is just an illustration right here's our darkness question Matthew chapter 6 verse 23 doesn't actually ask it as a question it says it as a statement I want to make it a question for us it says if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness right same word if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Right? There is darkness in this world, and there is darkness in us. So in a, in a strange way, the reality of our lives is we are in the darkness, and the darkness is in us. And the darkness is something to be afraid of. And so the questions for us about this darkness is, what, what's the nature of this kind of darkness? Is it merely darkness like nighttime? Is it a darkness that can be overcome by human ingenuity and invention and effort? Right? Does this kind of darkness bend its knee to the day that you finally invent the light bulb and all of a sudden the darkness is done with? Or is it not? Is there any human activity that can overcome this darkness can you just invent something can you just be more sure and more confident and learn something and apply it and overcome this darkness we're going to learn today no you cannot right this darkness is man's environment this darkness presents me with some conditions that are beyond my capacity right when i walk into a dark room i'm sure you like you I reach for the light switch immediately. And if I'm not going to turn the light switch on, I use a flashlight. I do something to deal with the darkness because I lack a capacity. I can't see in the dark. Right? I, can, I can shadow an image and maybe just a little bit my eyes will adjust. But at the end of the day, I can't see in the dark. There's something of the nature of this darkness that I don't have the capacity to overcome. Right now, this is an introduction to humility. An introduction to an inadequate capacity is an introduction to humility. It's me getting in the presence of darkness, and I realize darkness is this big, and I am this big. And if I want to overcome that darkness, I'm going to need something outside of me to help me overcome. I'm going to need the light switch. I don't have in me the ability to deal with darkness. And that's a humble spot, isn't it? To recognize that there's something about me that I'm inadequate to deal with. I don't know how that plays out in the comparison world as I'm trying to compete with somebody else in the pride category to come into a recognition that I can't do this. It's not that if I practiced harder or tried better or studied more and got better ideas, I could. No, it's just the finalization of I cannot do this. 
Right? Here's what we learn about darkness. The origin of these prophecies about this darkness that Jesus would come into was a description in this world Isaiah really helps with. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21, he begins a section about this darkness. He says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed. All right, let's, let's learn some characteristics of this darkness. This is what darkness feels like. They are greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But while there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And this is the passage that Matthew quotes about Jesus' ministry. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep Darkness on them has light dawned. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And he goes on a little bit later and quotes a very familiar verse to us at Christmas time, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So even the prophet Isaiah creates the setting for unto us a child is born as a setting of great darkness. And that darkness feels a certain way. Right? When you look in your life and you identify with these elements of being distressed in this inner turmoil, he describes as a hunger that produces a, an enraging in us. Right. This is the conditions of this darkness. It's, it's a little different than stumbling around a room. This is what we stumble around in that is irritating to us, debilitating to us, frustrating to us. It makes us panic. It sends us into great fear. And so in the same way that you're a little kid and, and without even understanding why you're afraid of the dark, there is an agitation, an irritation, a cornering, an intimidation about darkness that is in the world that Jesus Christ is going to come into. Now, where does this darkness kind of get its origin? What's well, interesting, if you go back in Isaiah and you look at what he's describing in their day about this darkness, this is about 720 B.C., so 720 years before Christ is born. The nation of Israel has begun to wander in their affections for some years now away from God. And when it comes to being a nation, they have stopped looking to God to protect them. They've begun to look to foreign kings. They have stopped consulting God for you know, just internal insight into life and what to do next and how do we live. They've begun to consult spiritists in the land. And so they are abandoning God in this day. And so I'll make the case for this, that the abandonment of God was the source of their deep darkness. And right, doesn't this make sense? 
that Jesus Christ is going to bear a unique title. He is the light of the world. So it just makes sense that the absence of that light creates something we call darkness, right? I think you could define darkness that way, couldn't it? The absence of light is darkness. Well, as the people of God abandoned God and became more and more distant from him and separated themselves from him and pursued other things, this condition of darkness began to describe their lives. And Isaiah goes on later in the book of Isaiah chapter 59 and describes this. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then later on in that same chapter, a few verses later, he says, Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. That's the condition that they began to live in, but Isaiah highlights something that brought about that condition. It was the distance and separation from God who is our light. So this world is in darkness because it is separated from God, right? That's what the Bible says here. I've read this verse to folks sometimes, and it's almost like shocking news to some people that the Bible actually says this. Because sometimes people are living life, and they're kind of, they develop this sense of, well, where is God? Why isn't God? Why doesn't God answer? Why does it feel like God's not there? And that's what Isaiah's responding to. He says, well, listen, the Lord's hand is not so short that it can't save. It's not like, God. well, God ran out of power. The disconnect here is not because God lacks ability. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you. Listen, I didn't have a category for that before I read the Bible and before I was saved. I had no category for that. Literally, this is a true story. I won't go into the details, but I could commit a crime and then pray for God to rescue me from the people who were chasing me. I literally did that. So I am hiding from getting caught, and I am praying and asking God to keep me from getting caught. I just broke the law. That's how much sense this idea made to me. Because I just figured, he's God. I'm part of these nebulous, everybody's a child of God kind of people. So if I'm in trouble, certainly he's got to take on some kind of responsibility for that, right? He cares, he's interested, he's available, he's a hotline. Any of us can pick the hotline up and call God at any moment. I had no concept that there was something called separation from God. And, and if you follow the, the media presentation of God today, there, there's no concept of that. Anybody and everybody's got access to God on whatever terms they want it, no matter what kind of belief they have, no matter what kind of lifestyle they live. They've got access to God, and the thought that God would not give them access is offensive to people. Okay, listen, get your back up or don't get your back up. That's up to you. I'm just telling you, this is in the Bible, 
And I think you'd rather listen to the Bible than whatever mood I'm in on a certain day, right? I'm in the mood where God's every nice. He's nice today. I'm going to tell you he's nice today. I'm, I'm in a different mood tomorrow. This is what the Bible says. There's a condition of separation from God, and it is that condition that brings this darkness into our experience. So in the Bible, darkness is associated with separation. Now, what's the remedy for this kind of darkness? Well, back in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is <clears throat> given. Against the backdrop of a people who were groping along the walls, staggering in darkness, confused and weighted down by sin, God's remedy to that is to send his son into the world in the form of a child. And then look at the difference here, right, right before that, in, in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 9. It says, you've multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What a difference between the other verses where they are greatly distressed, distressed, they're hungry, they're enraged, they speak contemptuously, there's distress, there's darkness. In this setting, the sending of the sun brings joy and rejoicing and gladness. This is why the songs that we sing around Christmas have so much of that theme in it. Because God has sent his son to rescue us from darkness. So this Christmas story is a story of darkness, but it's also a story of inability and incapacity. And it's not hard to see that, but it's very hard to read past it way too quickly, right? In this story, whatever our need is in this darkness, God himself must come and meet our need. God himself must show up, put his feet on planet Earth in the form of a human being to fix this. There is no other fix for this darkness. So interesting, I think I wrote this in your outline, how man seeks to solve his need is a revelation of what he perceives his need to be. Let me say that again. How man seeks to solve his need is a revelation of what he perceives his need to be. But if I asked any of us right now in your life, what are you most trying to fix right now? What is it that's kind of got you the most jazzed up and concerned and bent out of shape and aggressive and pondering and thinking in the night? What is it that you're trying to fix? That, that might reveal to you what you think your problem is. I think this is the problem. Oh, I've got to fix this. Oh, it's my weight. Oh, it's that relationship. Well, whatever it is, you're, you're greatly concerned because you think if I can fix that, I can, I can fix me. Well, it's interesting what God does here to fix us. It points to what the real problem is. And, and we've attempted all kinds of things as human beings to fix us, right? There are knowledge solutions. You know, there was a time in, in history of humanity, the players of all players in social settings were philosophers. Right? Right? They were the guys. And so you look to schools of philosophy to think your way through life and the right information. And we've kind of 
gone down the line here. We kind of don't, don't, don't have philosophers the same way we once did as human beings. But now education systems rule the day. They rule the day. I mean, you, you just watch the news. You listen as the politics unrolls in the coming year. What is it that will fix man? And I promise you there's going to be a lot about the education system and about educating our children. And why is it that society's got this ill and that problem? Well, it's because of the education system, because we're not educating. And so education, certain knowledge becomes that which fixes us. By the way, every other religion except Christianity fixes you with a new set of knowledge. Have you ever thought about that? No other religion actually changes you. It just changes the information that you're dealing with. No other religion tries to fix what's broken with man by sending God in the form of a baby to become a human being. No other religion does that. Right? I mean, hey, Islam just picks up five principles and hands them to you and says, go and practice these. Do the best you can with them. Work really hard. Show up at Mecca. Pray three times a day, et cetera, et cetera. It just gives you new information. It recognizes that the world's broken. It recognizes what the Bible calls darkness, but it tries to fix it with information. That's not what this story does. It doesn't fix our need with information. It doesn't fix it with the empires and economic structures that we create, you know, whether it's the Egyptian empire, the Roman empire, the British empire, the American empire. Let's build this system of economics throughout the world where we can gather resources to ourselves. So far, that doesn't seem to have fixed anybody. But yet we still try and do that. Technology, science, you know, whether it's the Iron Age and man's using to create tools with the Iron Age or whether it's the Industrial Age or whether it's the Information Age. Technology and science has not fixed humanity. So how does God deal with this darkness problem? Well, God doesn't solve man's problem by rallying man's strength like all these other things do. You, I understand this story that we, we have gotten so familiar with this story, right? This baby born in Bethlehem. This is a radical concept. This is a crazy concept in heaven. If it is not for the the setting of heaven being the perfection of God, this is a head-scratcher and a confusing moment in heaven. You're going to do what, God? You're going to become one of them? What What are you thinking? Unheard of. So beneath you. Ridiculous. No. I mean, even when Jesus shows up as a servant, he can't even wash people's feet right? No, no, you don't wash my feet. This is, a, this is a crazy idea. It's interesting that all of man's solution is bound up in man rallying around his own strength. Better effort, more determination. This, you know, it's, it's really a shame. I grew up uh, having lost the sense of God's saving act on my behalf in a way that I could not contribute to, thinking that religion for me was learning what to do and doing the best at it that I possibly could. That became what I called Christianity. Can I tell you that's not Christianity? 
That's Buddhism. Buddha comes along, gives you some ideas. Here's how to improve your life. Think this way, do this. Practice these meditations. Practice this way of life. Transform your thinking into this category. That's Islam. But it's not Christianity. Christianity reaches into darkness in a very, very different way. So this, this is where humility comes flooding into the Christian setting because Christianity screams at us, you have a problem that you cannot fix. Well, it's even more insulting. You are a problem that you cannot fix. <laughs> right? I'd like to think it's just, hey, God, can you, can you come fix this thing's broken over here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right? The problem is here. And how humbling that is to become aware that these actions that we're seeing taken, this radical, crazy concept that God's going to come in the form of a man was because of how broken I was and how much I could never fix me. I don't have the capacity. I'm not able. See, this is the humble beginnings of humility of recognizing that the greatest story of all time, the greatest story of my life begins with me recognizing I'm not capable. Humbling, isn't it? See, if I'm trying to answer the question of, have I got this? You know, I got this. Hey, God, I got this. You recognize a lot of us are living life that way, right? God, I got this. Do I have some inherent capacity, some talent, some smarts, some strength, some moral fortitude, people connections that I just need to tap into and then I can solve my need? Is that, is that who I am? Like, can, I, can I just rag on us in a category that makes this real for us? Because there, there is a posture, and it's a pride posture. It is a lack of humility. It, it, is, it is an ignoring of desperation when my life starts looking to God like, I got this. I got this, God. I got this. Now, nobody has a bumper sticker on the back of their car that I'm aware of in this church that says, hey, God, I got this. <laughs> But to not live in desperate need of God, to not live before him aware, I don't have this. To be postured that way. Well, what, 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 is it, what does it look like to be postured in the reality that I firmly believe I ain't got this? Whatever the this is in my life, it's coded in darkness. I ain't got it. My ability to live life a certain way. I ain't got it, God. I, 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 don't, I don't have it. I, I can't self-fix. The darkness is too great. The darkness that I'm in is too great. And the darkness in me is too great. I ain't got this, God. So if I'm postured that way, and whatever it is that I'm trying to live and exist and be for the glory of God, to live in this world and never pick this book up, is to stick a bumper sticker on my car and say, hey, God, I got this. 
to live busy lives where I have filled my life up with people after people after activity and activity and schedule and schedule and I don't have time to pray is to stick a bumper sticker on my life that says, hey God, I got this. To to be in relationships with one another, to be in the church together in relationships with one another, to be married, to be in connection with other human beings in a designed way that God has put them in our lives, and to be ignorant of what God intends to do in those settings is to tell God, I got this. Because those settings are going to surprise you. How many of you have been surprised by those settings? There are a lot of moments, whether, in whatever role, stick me in whatever role. Stick me in the church. I ain't got this. Make me a parent. I ain't got this. And don't amen me from the front row. I know I ain't got this, all right? (laughs) Husband, I ain't got this. Right? I, I am in darkness, and darkness exists in me. I ain't got this. The remedy for that is not for God to pick up a megaphone in heaven and become a cheerleader for me to summon all my strength. I need light to come from outside of me. I need something besides me to solve this. And that's what makes for a humble posture. Right? Man needs God to come in the form of a man. Because man needs a savior who can meet the unique need of forgiving man's sins and restoring man to God. Why do I pick on those two things? Forgiving man's sins and restoring man to God because that's what Isaiah said was the source of our darkness. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And in the wandering hearts of the Israelites, when they went after foreign gods, when they went after foreign kings to protect them, and they stopped looking to God, darkness became the description of their life. And isn't this interesting, right? Let me go back to Luke chapter 1 here. Speaking to John the Baptist, he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John, what are you going to do to prepare the ways for Jesus? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of of death. Now, isn't this interesting? That this dawning of light, this freeing us and liberating us from darkness in this passage, as well as in Isaiah, has got everything to do with the forgiveness of our sins. This darkness is related to sin in some way. And for us to escape the darkness, The light must come near to us. And the light of the world, God himself, Jesus Christ, is the light of this world. We have to be restored to him and experience his nearness in order for this 
darkness to get dispelled and for this light to come. Now, here's the challenging thing about humility. Oh, what a great assignment John the Baptist has. What a hated assignment by man John the Baptist had. John, what's your job? Well, basically, I'm supposed to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Ooh, you got, you drew that straw. Oh. So, John, are you telling me your job is to make them aware of their sin? That's your job, dude? You get to go and reveal to people their humble status, that there is sin that's polluted their existence, and they are in need of forgiveness so that they could be saved. You get that part of the job? Yeah. That's the straw I drew. Do you remember how well-received John the Baptist was? Right? I mean, he was like playing Carnegie Hall. He was in the big places, right? He was welcomed amongst the thinkers and all the important religious people. They were rolling out the red carpet. Let's have John the Baptist come speak at our Pharisee convention. Anybody familiar with any of this? The dude hung out on the edge of town, away from everybody. The crowds had to go find him in his obscurity. That's how welcomed he was. Do you remember the end of John the Baptist's story? He gets arrested and beheaded. All right, well, this is a living advertisement for, we might like the topic humility, but do not make me feel humble. I will cut your head off. Do not make me feel humble. That was his ministry. It was a make-you-feel-humble ministry. It was a make-you-aware that you've got something in your life that's bigger than you will ever be. You have a problem in your life that you can never fix. You are desperate and needy. And God will have to do something to help you and to fix you. It's humble to ponder the question in Matthew chapter 6. If then the light in you is darkness, how... How great is the darkness? How bad is the darkness in me? How bad is the darkness in you? Now listen, I know there's darkness. And if I open this message up and say, hey guys, we live in a dark world. Amen, brother. Amen. It's serious. Yeah. I mean, you look at what's happening in terrorism. Yeah, it's a dark world. It's a dark world. Let me tell you about the drug cartels in Mexico. Yeah dark world. Look at the violence in our country. Yeah, it's a dark world. See, it's real comfortable for me to talk about that dark world out there. But how dark is it in here? In me. See, because there's not an ounce of humility for me to say, yeah, it's, it's dark in the terrorism world. I don't have to take any humility on my part to do that. But to face my own darkness, to face the things in me, that are tenaciously dark, that I don't have power over. And if you were to read the storyline of that in my life, you would read the story of momentary success and lots of failure and momentary success and lots of failure. I see, I don't even like to publish that stuff. Do you? Right? I talk about the darkness. I'd, I'd like to talk about the things that I do pretty well. I like that. But where there's real darkness, tenacious darkness that exists in my life. I, I, don't, I don't want to go there. 
But to the degree that I ignore that, to the degree that I only focus on the things that I do well, rather than being honest about the places where darkness is in me too, I lose sight of how desperately I need a Savior. And you do too. <clears throat> Here's a great concern, because remember, I, I want these messages to land in the aroma of this church. <clears throat> Right? I want, want somebody to walk through the back door or walk into our living rooms or walk into a small group and, and smell something that smells like a strange aroma of humility, of a people who have come to grips with these truths. And we are humble people to be around. When I look in your outline there, it says this. One of the examples of <clears throat> what I started with, quote, loving humility but having no clue about being humble is when people are very aware of the failures of others who can't seem to get the upper hand on their brand of darkness while you are only slightly aware of how dark the darkness is inside of you. Now listen, I know this is just a few of us who need to hear this, so the rest of you just tolerate it. Part of our brokenness is that we just don't even know how to look at things. Right, so we've got this terrible ability. Right? There, you know, there's, let's face it, there are certain sins and darkness that's, that's just louder than other darkness, you know? So you got those outspoken, overspoken, hothead, angry, say too much, put your foot in your mouth people. You get around them and they say stuff and they bulldoze and they're obnoxious and they've got attitudes and they've always got too much to say and they're, you know, just their expressions, right? You know, you got some people who just walk into a room, they're in a bad mood and everybody feels like, oh, I think I've done something wrong. What happened? You got those people. And it's very easy to see their darkness, isn't it? Like, oh, my. What are they dealing with these things in their lives? Let's oh, get like that. That's just terrible way he speaks to her. And then you've got the other side of that that's fearful and anxious and timid and insecure and notices everything that's a threat to me personally, everything that looks like it might undo something or challenge me in some way or put me in an awkward light. Now, I don't come out noisy about that but I'm all tangled up. I am in the dark as much in the dark as the loud guy is in the dark. I'm in the dark. But when I engage the loud guy, I interact with his darkness in a totally different way. I'm all about his darkness. But I don't humbly approach him with a sense of, hey, man, I get it. You got darkness? I got darkness. My darkness doesn't look like yours, but I get it. There's a tenacity of this darkness in certain places in my life that, man, it'll throw a punch every time, and I stagger. That's humility, isn't it? Where did that humility come from? It came from a self-awareness. Right, you understand? It's, it's easy to be sitting and listening to prayer requests about <clears throat> people who've got, you know, blowing up their marriages, and they've got drug addictions and alcohol abuse going on in their lives, and, oh, that darkness is just there. Look at the darkness. Oh, how does he do this again? Oh, 
and you're sitting in the room and, and, and you're as big an overeater as anybody. But that darkness doesn't feel the same way to you, does it? Or the person who just looks really, really materialistic, they show up, they're just, you know, they're dressed a certain way, they're driving a certain car, but you can tell, you know, the kingdom's got a back seat going on in their life. Just very materialistic, or maybe it's a young woman and she's, you know, just too immodest, too interested in, in having everybody just, you know, get a look at what she's about. And you look at that and you think, look at the darkness right there. Look at that. I sure hope the pastors are going to address this. And you're as lazy of a human being as there ever was. If I walked in your house right now, you'd be embarrassed. Because you hadn't kept up with X, Y, or Z and who knows how long because you just don't feel like it. But that darkness is not a big deal to you, is it? That other darkness is a big deal. Do you understand how this stuff operates in us? See, what, what, what ends up being a non-humble environment is when I lose track of the reality of darkness is in me. I needed a Savior. Look, I, I don't know. I can read some of your resumes, but I've read mine, and I know I needed a savior. There was a condition that exists in my life that the only remedy is for God himself to step in and to do something that I don't have the power to do. Humility starts when I recognize I'm too small for this. And when you stop seeing that, you'll all of a sudden notice how somebody else is too small for theirs without any sense of humility that you know, man, your struggle's not my struggle, but let me tell you, I, I have my own categories or I'm too small for them. And they drag me backwards through life and I hate it. And I know that I need God. I know I do. And some of us are here, praise God, having with some of that stuff in our rearview mirror that God stepped in years ago and cut that stuff off. But I'll tell you this, there are things in my life that I, I can look at in the rearview mirror and I can say that thing there, it's, that's not there anymore. Just not there anymore. Now, it's tempting to do that, isn't it? And then when you look at somebody else who seems to still be stinking it up in that category, you just look like you can't understand. Did you lose sight of something? That there's only one remedy to darkness in this Bible, and it ain't you. So whatever happened in your life, it took this story that we're celebrating. It took God coming in the form of a man to invade your darkness and bring light. And had he not do that, done that, you'd not be free of anything. See, only God can be glorified by what he has done to rescue us from darkness. Eric, you can come back up here. Let me read this line to you. I think I put it in your outline there. Our humble beginnings are that we all needed a Savior to deal with our darkness. There's never a day that I get to look down on your darkness and have some air of superiority about myself. That day doesn't exist. That day just means not only am I in darkness, but I'm also stupid. <laughs> I've lost sight of the fact that the only steps into freedom from darkness 
that were ever provided were the work of the Son of God and what he did. Listen, God didn't stand on that Christmas moment with a star shining in the heavens and say, listen, wise men, shepherds, I've summoned you all here with a message. Go and tell all the people, all the seriously devoted and dedicated people, that if they'd like to get free of their darkness, I'm going to have a meeting with them coming up. Is that what we encounter in the Christmas story? This is not God rallying human strength. This is God stepping into human need. I am needy, and I'd like to think I'm not. I'd like to be more impressed with myself, but I am just plain needy, and it humbles me to know that. All right, listen, I'm going to ask you to respond in a moment, but just listen to the tone of Psalm 18, verse 16. It says, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Pride is too mighty for me. Laziness, lust, anger, fear. These, these things are too mighty for us. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. A few verses later it says, for you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And then what a story comes into our lives after that. The psalmist says, for by you I can. By you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. So how do you get to the moment where you assess your life and you find some category where there's something that looks like it might be great. With that kind of a resume, how do you get there and be proud? Only, only by being equally stupid of what really happened. Listen, this morning, we all share the same 
humble beginnings. You know the old saying, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. I hope, you know, I have many of you here that are new to the church, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know your story, and I, I don't know what it's like for you to walk in here. It's tragic for me to hear from people sometimes who walk into a setting where there's other Christians who seem like they've walked with God and they know God, and, the, and people feel unworthy to be in that setting. I hope you don't feel that way. I hope you're in a place around people who know we share the exact same humble beginnings, the same story, the same darkness that you were in, I was in. And the same darkness that's in you is in me. And the only liberation didn't come from me. It came from the God who stepped in and brought light into my darkness. My darkness might be a little bit different than your darkness, but it's still darkness. It's this God who creates a community here. Ought it to be a, a humble community? A place where no one's feeling like they're trying to measure up. No one's trying to play by somebody else's rules. No one's trying to impress no one's feeling awesome about themselves because their resume looks different than somebody else's. Their problems have changed in a way that somebody else's haven't. Listen, that's, that's, a, that's a stupid environment, isn't it? Because the only remedy available to us was for light to come from outside of us and rescue us. And that's equally true of every one of us this morning. Let's stand up together. Lord, would you meet us in this moment right now as we have gazed in wonder upon what you have done and, and God, it's put us in our place, a needy place, a broken place, a dark place. God, the good news of the gospel is that you did not leave us in that place and the even greater news is you didn't tell us to go fix it ourselves. Lord, this morning we have once again been introduced to our humble beginnings. Darkness and inability. That is our humble beginnings. A revelation that we cannot self-fix. There is no self-fixing. If there were there would be no Christmas story. There would just be another prophet with some words. But there is a God who came in the form of a man because that was the only way to fix our brokenness. It is still true of us today. There's no self-fixing. If you're here this morning and You've not come to the place of recognizing you cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough. You cannot find something in life that will patch all the holes. 
You can't make up for what you've done wrong to God. You, you can't fix those things. If you're here this morning and you don't recall a moment where you owned for yourself your own darkness, your own sin, and stood before God saying, I need you to forgive me. I need you to do that. I need to get set free of these things that I've done. No matter what anybody else has done, I have done things, God, that I need you to forgive me. Maybe you're a person who's really added insult to injury by trying to get God to forgive you by doing something. You're going to be more religious. You're going to be more dedicated. You're going to try and not do things again. Listen, here's the good news. Those things don't fix you. They don't bring forgiveness. What brings forgiveness to your life is that baby born in a manger that God sent to take your place to live the life that you can't live. He lived for you. To take the punishment of your sins upon himself so that you would not have to take those penalties. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. He died in your place. God raised him from the dead and now he will give you new life freely. If you're here this morning and you're looking back in your life saying, I, I can't recall ever Having done that, I can't recall ever coming to the place where I put all my trust and my hope in Christ for what he did for me to fix my broken life and forgive me of my sins. We'll do it right now. Tell the Lord, Lord, I want you to forgive me this morning because of what Jesus did for me. I recognize why he came. He came for me. He came to forgive me of my sins and to restore me to you so that light would come into my dark world. I see that this morning, God, so I cry out to you, God, forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus Christ to be my Savior, to come into my world and to fix the brokenness of it and to bring light into my life. Lord, that's what I do this morning, December the 13th, 2015. I'm going to remember this day, Lord. the day I knew I needed you to be my Savior. There's some of us here this morning, I think the Lord wants to deal with this community that he's creating. And to build what God wants to build in this place is to build a people who are humble. So this morning, I just want you to I want to be John the Baptist for a moment, and I'd appreciate you not beheading me. In your heart, in your heart, have you sinned against other people by looking down disdainfully on their darkness, their sins, their struggles? Has there been an attitude in you that feels you're somehow in a better place than they are? Have you, have you inappropriately avoided people or spoken of people in a way because you have gazed into their broken world and found something in you to be proud of? Well, then right now, 
own, as John the Baptist would tell you, own your sin before God. Your arrogance, your overlooking your darkness, your overlooking the greatness. If there's any in you, it belongs to Christ and what he has done on your behalf that you could never have done. Have you set that aside, feeling somehow superior about yourself? Well, this morning, God, would you rid us of such attitudes? God, would we find ourselves not just with a new vocabulary? God, I don't want a new vocabulary. I want a new awareness, Lord. I want my DNA instructing my life and speaking to me. I want to be aware that my only escape from darkness that's been in my life was because of light that came to me in the person of your son. God, I want to be aware that if there's any walls that I've leapt over, any bows that I've pulled back with my hands, it's because my God has been my source. He has done these things. Where is boasting in that? I will boast in my God. And knowing myself, God, I stand most amazed that you have done anything with me. How did you do that? I know what I'm like. I know my self-serving interest and my own pride. How did you ever manage to pull off something glorious in my darkened soul. God, would you bring fresh amazement into our lives? Awe. I look at my life and I think, Lord, how did you do that? How did you overcome me? And God, if you can overcome me, can't you overcome anything? God, you make us a church that smells humble. And we don't mind feeling small because we are. And we don't mind being needy because we are. And we don't mind being unimpressive because we are. So, Lord, as we sing this song and close, Lord, help us. This is a liberating thing for us. What a joy. What gladness in this son born into this world to invade our gripping darkness and gloom and distress. Lord, what gladness awaits us to be rid of my self-exalting, self-serving pride to be who I really am, a humble creature needing a great God. We are not what we should be. We haven't sought what we should seek. We've seen your glory, Lord, but looked away. Our hearts are bent, our eyes are dim. Our finest works are stained with sin. 
and emptiness has shadowed all our ways. Jesus Christ, shine into our night, drive our dark Till your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Bind us to your cross where we find We often go astray We chase the world, forget your grace But you have never failed to bring us back No, God! Reveal the depths of what you've done If you died, the victory won made a way for us to know your love. Thank you, Lord. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Drive our dark away till your glory fills our Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your example of humility. Lord, thank you for the light that you have shine, shown into our, our lives. Lord, would we receive this word this morning? Lord, would we 
would we apply this word this morning? Lord, would you make us a church filled with humble people, filled with people who are aware of the ways in which darkness resides, Lord, and who are militant to trust in your grace to fight the darkness, Lord, and to be humble people. Would you be with us today and this week as we apply this word? We thank you for it. Thank you for your amazing grace. In your name we pray. Amen. See you guys tonight, 7 o'clock, for some Christmas music.